0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, American Manifesto, Rescuing America by Making Congress Serve Us Instead of Itself. And the author is Robin Fawcett. And Robin joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Robin. Steve, how are you? Well, great to have you with us. Uh, you're very direct in this American Manifesto. We'll get into your ideas and your determination in just a moment. Uh, let me read a couple of things you've written so everyone understands the direction of this book. You say this, America is under attack from within. American Manifesto identifies the enemy self-serving federal legislators and proposes a peaceful legal solution depriving them of re-election well right there and we wouldn't have to go any further for an incredible discussion but you also uh, highlight the current decline and the possible destruction of the united states of america and you also propose to make federal legislators to work for us rather than themselves in only one way possible and what is that robin
2: The only way I have thought of is to limit them to one term only in one house or the other, either the House of Representatives or the United States Senate, with ineligibility to ever run for another term in either.
1: Well, we'll talk more about the impact of that. Obviously, there would be many critics of such a Uh, proposal and a change to what's going on right now, the status quo. But let's learn a little bit more about you, Robin. Uh, Give us some details about your background and also why you decided to write American Manifesto. Well,
2: I'll tell you the latter first. I decided to write American Manifesto because I had started writing political pieces for friends, uh, starting Way back in the 2000 election, when the election was in danger of being decided by lawyers, and hundreds of lawyers descended on my home state, Florida, where I was born. And uh, being a lawyer myself, I'm not thrilled with the behavior of lawyers. I have very few close friends who are lawyers. And my son, then in in boarding school, now a doctor, Said, Dad, you ought to write a paper. So I wrote a paper called Essay for Chase. That's his name, Chase. And that's how it started. I think America is in very serious trouble, and I want people to start thinking critically about the things they can do to help. And one thing they can do to help is to elect people of a vastly higher quality and better character. To these high offices. And about me, I'm a management labor lawyer. I represent employers in labor relations and employment cases. I'm a partner of a firm called Schutz & Bowen. We've been blessedly successful and happy. I work with over 200 exceptional attorneys and a great bunch of staff members. I'm happily married to Edith, uh, to whom the book is dedicated. I have two children, uh, Suzanne and Chase, and two wonderful stepchildren, Jennifer, a lawyer, and Warren, in San Francisco, and three great-grandchildren. I was a University of North Carolina graduate. I was a lacrosse player in college and played a good bit since then, University of Florida Law School. And I'm a very, very serious lawyer, still working uh, in my early 70s, totally unretired. We live in Highlands, North Carolina, part of the time in my case, not that much of the time, because I work most of the time. And uh, that's probably enough about me at the moment.
1: (laughs) Well, that kind of sets the stage for more on American Manifesto You're very direct, and you place the blame and the responsibility of the decline and even the uh, possible destruction of the United States. Where do you place that blame? Well, in the book, I place it on
2: Congress, that is the Senate and House, because that's what the the book is about. Uh, How do I get away with placing blame on them in large part because they have the power to appropriate money. It's common and fashionable to blame presidents, uh, not only the current President Obama, but the past President Bush, all the way back to Johnson, for spending money. But a president under the Constitution can't spend money. He can't spend a dime unless it's appropriated by Congress. And we have a money society, as we've had now for several thousand years, and the people who appropriate and spend the money are responsible for what happens with it. And Congress, over the years, has made countless promises to organizations and people in general that it can't keep, and we are now borrowing enormously more than we can ever comfortably or happily pay back. That's their doing primarily. And they weigh in on a number of different issues, uh, military issues. Uh, The majority in Congress now wants to deprive the military and weaken us militarily so that more money can be spent to keep the promises made by Congress to the takers in our society who have become used to taking more than they produce. I mean, I could go on and on about why I blame them, but you don't want this interview to be totally uh, about that one question. That they, they're they not the only ones. Right. The, the presidents are to blame. And one thing I don't touch on in the book, this may be for the next book, the bureaucracy mm. is also a problem. And I think that more responsible term-limited congresspersons would have more to do with seeing to it that there's also suitable turnover in the bureaucracy. We cannot have a bureaucracy running our country. We have to have people who are accountable to us running our country. And this particular book, my first book, there may be others, this one focuses on on, on Congress as well as the various forces that impinge on Congress and require them to do the various things they do
1: When people stay in Congress for such a long time as they have been and uh, probably will continue unless something has changed uh, that that character that they take into Washington uh, you know they always have such great, great ideals, but seems like while they're there of the pressures, the the lobbying efforts, it, it really changes people. So, you know, with this one term, not everybody's affected that way. We would lose some good people.
2: Well, we lose good people in the sense that, A vast number of the best people in the country, who I do not think are in Congress at this time, don't run at all for a couple of reasons. Uh, One, it costs way too much money to run for the Senate or Congress. And secondly, you have to beg people for money, which people of high character don't like doing, I won't even solicit for my boarding school because I just don't like calling people and asking them to pay money. I'd rather have them do it voluntarily if they do it at all. I think that the entire highest level of individual in this country wouldn't be caught dead running for Congress now because of the expense and the ignominy of having to beg people for money, not to mention the corruptibility that comes from begging people for money who then give it and then expect you to do things that may not be in the best interest of the country. So uh, I I don't know that I agree that people enter Congress with high ideals. Uh, This gets to matters of opinion about human behavior, but I think the true behavior of a person comes out. Just as when a person drinks too much alcohol, their true nature comes out. I've observed in hunting, hunting for wild game, people's true nature, mainly men's true nature, comes out. Certainly in different boy-girl, male-female dealings, one's true nature comes out. I think in Congress, people who get there see money ahead for them, power ahead for them, and all they have to do is please the labor unions, please the NRA, please the environmentalists placate the party bosses, kowtow to party bosses like Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi, uh, uh, and now you know, Boehner in the House. I think people who come to Congress often start off with bad character, and then their behavior proves that. It's not so much that it changes them.
1: Let's talk more about labor unions that's your obviously your expertise you represent management uh, you've represented manage- management for years and we uh, as we record this uh, it is on uh, the recall election in Wisconsin and uh, we won't know the results that, uh before the end of this interview but this whole mentality that the labor union seems to portray that uh, the governor is hurting the members uh, by all these cuts, and they never seem to talk about the the whole state was in debt, and he's now has a surplus. So, what is it about that labor union mentality?
2: Well, the labor union mentality, uh, <clears throat> first of all, is take care of the union first, and in the process, take care of the high paid union officials. Uh, go online sometime and look up the LM1 or the LM2 of any local union or national union. You'll be shocked at the money these people make. Uh, and it all comes from membership dues. Unions don't publicize this, but unions are businesses. They are not charitable organizations interested in the welfare of the workers they are big businesses interested in preserving and enhancing their own wealth and, and, and power. The Wisconsin situation is a microcosm of what's happening in this country, and it's a very interesting situation. Most of the money being sent to Governor Scott Walker and by far most of the money being paid in by labor unions is coming from other states. Uh, I myself sent some money to Governor Walker, and uh, the money is pouring in from labor unions all over the country. But, as I point out in the chapter on labor unions, it's not really their money. Legally, it is their money, but unions are different from businesses and law firms Mm -hmm. and doctors. Unions don't make a product. They don't sell a product. They don't have to make a profit. They don't really earn the money. They simply take the money and membership dues, and then they spend it the the way they want. And uh, the unions recognize the Wisconsin situation as a real challenge to their power going forward and their money going forward, and this is especially true of the public sector unions In the last 10 or 15 years, public sector unions, that is unions that represent state and local government employees, including police and firefighters, and teachers, public school teachers, have become extremely powerful. They have tons of money. At this time, they contributed almost entirely to Democratic candidates, but that would change. If Republican candidates began pandering to them, they'd contribute it to them. It just happens that Republican candidates don't do this at this time. The Wisconsin situation, which we'll know about sometime tonight, will, I think, be an indicator of whether the people in this country have waked up to the fact that governments, Wisconsin government and the federal government, are spending and borrowing way, way more money than they have and that they can afford to ever repay.
1: You have chapters on Social Security, the health care crisis, federal taxation, the environment, uh, Iran, uh, the Iraq War, uh, relations between nations, the free market economy. It is comprehensive. The American left. The only solution, though, is your last chapter. Just conclude this uh, discussion about your book, Robin, The Only Solution. What is it?
2: Well, the only solution, in my opinion, that I have been able to think of is to limit congressmen and senators to one term only, to let them run for either the US Senate or the US House. I pulled four years out of the air, it could be five years, Uh, a friend in Orlando suggested four years, I went with that. But that's long enough for them to learn the job, and if they're in that term for only the one term, can't ever run for either house again, that forces them to focus strictly on what's best for America. They will propose legislation, and they will vote on legislation after researching it, and they will do it based on their own research their own conscience consciences and their own judgment about what's best they may make they may make mistakes you mentioned earlier opposition of course there would be every every single member of the house and every single senator would recoil in revulsion at, at this idea uh... and the one of the arguments i've heard that i can easily refute i think is that it just takes more than one term to learn what you're doing up there. That's totally bogus. Uh, uh, becoming a good judge in state or federal court is much harder than becoming a congressman or a senator, and a really fine lawyer can start being a good judge almost from day one. does not require a lot of on-the-job training. Some of our best Supreme Court justices of the past uh, were lawyers who became judges for the first time when appointed to the Supreme Court. It takes, it takes a certain amount of aptitude to be a legislator, but mainly it takes high character, uh, immunity from being corrupted and immunity from voting to please any particular interest. And I tried to be careful in the book Obviously, it's not hard to know that I'm conservative and that I plan to vote Republican, uh, but I tried to minimize that. I tried to make this not a conservative diatribe or rant, but a plea that people who read it start thinking more critically about who we elect and trying to get a much higher and better sort of person in those houses. I don't seriously expect the Constitution to be amended in this respect. That would have to be initiated by Congress, and, of course, I don't think they're going to do it. As I point out in the chapter on taxation, in which I give some credit to Neil Bortz and former Congressman John Linder for their idea about the fair tax, Congress has power. The Internal Revenue Code is one of their big sources of power. They're not about to give it up. Uh, And therefore, I don't think they're about to ever propose a faucet amendment to the Constitution to limit themselves to one term. My goal in writing the book, among other things, was to get people to start thinking seriously and critically about who to to get into office, who to elect, who to get rid of, just to make them think more critically and carefully about it because it's so important.
1: We've been listening to Robin Fawcett. He is the author of his book, American Manifesto, Rescuing America by Making Congress Serve Us Instead of Itself. Robin, tell us how to get your book. There are are three main ways to get it online.
2: It's available on Amazon, and you can order it in hardcover, softcover, or e-book. Uh, Same with Barnes & Noble. Or you can order it directly from the publisher, which is known as iUniverse, uh, small I, capital U, iUniverse. Uh, they will sell it to you. Uh, they're not very expensive. And uh, I guess anybody that wanted to contact me, I have some here. Uh, I eventually will have personal book signings, perhaps. But uh, the best way at this time will be online. I don't have a website at this time. Uh, But, you know, I would like to have the book read. Sales weren't the main goal. Having it read, having people think about these things we've been discussing is the primary goal. Thank you, Robin, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you. I very much have appreciated the opportunity, and it's been a pleasure to speak with you, sir.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
3: Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle and sidekick Nina Fry every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. you Donna is a charismatic, market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes. All the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introink.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be in the hands of individuals, on the air with you. Talk Since Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Simaluca, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 Central, on Toginhead.com.
0: Welcome back. To iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, I Am Me Collection of Short Stories, and the author is Ram Sundaram. And Ram joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Ram. Hello, Steve. I'm going to read just a short introduction for everyone so they can kind of in general understand a very unique book, a very thought-provoking book. You'll understand more in just a moment when we talk about the details of this. This is what you say, I Am Me is a two-way book with Ten pairs of short stories, of course, that means 20 short stories. Each pair has two stories that have the same title and concept, but are written in an entirely different way. One half of the book represents reality, while the other reflects a a fantasy dreamscape. Ultimately, each reader can decide which version of each story they prefer. (laughs) So... A very thought-provoking book, obviously. Uh, what caused all of this, Ram? What was the motivation here?
4: Well, to be completely honest, I was actually working on a two-way book that was going to be a novel. And then I was writing these short stories, and I had about eight or nine written. And one of the short stories I was kind of unhappy with, I felt it could go in a different direction. So I wrote another version of it, and I thought, which one do I like better? And then I thought, hang on a minute, why can't I just use both? Because... I noticed that one was very fantastical in a sense, and the other one was very real, very tangible. And I thought that I like that whole distinction. I mean, we think the world is still black and white, but I think it's primarily gray. Mm. And I just wanted to explore that a bit more and just kind of present both two extreme contrasting versions of a story and then still right. tie it together so that, the, so that we can understand that these two contrasting realities are still the same.
1: Yeah, just to add to what you just said, you write the understanding that there is as much fiction in fact as there is fact in every fiction.
4: Absolutely. (laughs) Well, I mean, we get so distressed when we hear a lie, but I mean, there's so much truth in every lie, and there's so much lie in every truth, so it's... (laughs)
1: Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, well, you have that human nature thing in there, don't you? Uh, you're thinking one thing, but it doesn't quite come out the way you're thinking. or Yeah. Or, or, and often language is, is restrictive of really expressing exactly what you're feeling or what's going on.
4: Absolutely. I mean, the language has no meaning until it's understood. So, I mean, I can uh, write a book, but until it's understood, it has no meaning. And who knows how it can be interpreted? So there's no, like... There's no actual message in anything until it's interpreted.
1: That's a great point. Now, let's talk about the title of the book, I Am Me. Mm -hmm. Why did you name the book, I Am Me?
4: Well, initially, I wanted to write uh, 10 short stories that reflected the journey we take as individuals from birth until death and the afterlife, and I was consumed by the idea that the ego affects all of our choices in life, and... um, once I wrote, once I decided to do the two-way book, though I realized that the other half of the book could represent the collective. So the title is called "I Am Me," but the reflection of the title on the on the cover says "I Am We," and uh, that's really the idea that I wanted to explore that duality between the individual and the collective.
1: So your conclusion is that our egos affect every single choice and decision. Ego is the uh, prime. Uh, energizer, the motivator, the... Uh, I i can't come up with any other words. Absolutely. What, uh, so talk talk more about that.
4: Well, it's just uh, its an idea that I just stumbled upon last year. When you go out into the world and you just observe people, you, you realize that every decision they make is ego-driven. And its it's not a negative thing by any means. We all do it because the ego is just self-awareness. It's the awareness that you are... An individual being and you are different from everyone else and it's an awareness that you really can't separate from yourself so I mean if uh, I mean say you're driving in, in, a, in a route that you take all the time for example and let's say the speed limits about 45 and um, you suddenly come across a car that's going at about 44 43 and you're used to driving at 45 let's say that's your comfort zone you get so angry, you get so distressed by the fact that someone's forcing you to drive out of your comfort zone that you know you, you switch lanes and you give that guy like a, a glare as you pass him by. What's the subtext of what's happening is that you're thinking, I'm a special being, I like to drive at this and you're forcing me to drive out of my comfort zone. That's really the subtext. And you know, that's a very trivial example, but it you can kind of incorporate that into every single aspect of our life.
1: So when we watch the news, when we watch leaders speak, or there's some debate about wars or politics, uh, even entertainment, and even say sports, of course, a lot of ego in sports. But if we look at and listen, if we're listening to these words from these people, we start to analyze the ego behind all those words. I, there's a whole different meaning.
4: Well, all the examples you came up with were perfect, really, from uh, entertainment and politics and, uh, you know, the celebrity world. Uh, in particular, I mean, if you, I always come up with this example. When two people from different religions kind of argue about whose religion, whose faith is better, it's not the religion that they're defending. It's their belief in the religion. And, you know, I mean, that's that's the most... A final example of what the ego is is that, I mean, when you believe in something, you believe it's special because you are an intelligent being and you've decided to believe in it. So it's not actually what you believe in that you defend. In that sense, everything that we argue about all kinds of conflict becomes actually trivial because it's on such a personal, individualistic uh, realm when it shouldn't be, if you think about it.
1: Well, as you uh, have written uh, about a message in the book, the individual is at the heart of all existence. I is the cause of everything. That vertical pronoun, I've heard it described, I, as opposed to we. So I am me, but the the other I am we, the two don't go together, or do they go together?
4: I think I, a bit of both, I would say. Because, I mean, what i like to say is that existence is individual, but we are not individuals. And what I mean is we, uh, we each exist independently and alone from everyone else. But I think at the end of the day, we have a collective consciousness. Because, for example, there is no such thing as an original thought or an original idea. I mean, what you have is an idea that's repackaged somewhat. But you're borrowing from the ideas that have come from everyone else around you. And in that regard, I think we have very much a collective consciousness, but our existence at the same time is individual, and that's where we get a little deluded. We think we are individuals, and we are separate from everyone else, but it's just our existence that's separate. We are still the same.
1: So what we call real, then, in many ways could be fantasy, because it's from our point of view, and what we see, we may not be seeing correctly.
4: That's perfect, actually. I think you've, I think you've understood something that I've had a very hard time explaining. Um, that's exactly what it is. I mean, what I mean by fantasy and reality in terms of the book isn't necessarily that kind of like a, a, a split between what's a dreamscape and what's real. It's actually what you said is that we we perceive things to be something when it's actually something else, and that's what I wanted to present with the book is to give two realities that are seemingly so contrasting and so different. But if you learn to almost like strip away all the differences and examine what they actually are underneath, you realize they're basically the same.
1: And of course, perception is reality. That's the bottom line in life. Uh, let's talk about, a, a, let's just talk about one of these. Uh, you, you've described a scene where a man stands in the middle of a beach on a hot summer day with a large wall before him. Now, can you go on and, and give us this duality about that scene?
4: Um, yeah, the, the, the story is called Reality's Dream. And it just starts with this man, like you said, standing on a beach on a hot summer day. There's a wall in front of him. On the other side of the wall is a bottle of cold beer. And in order to reach the beer, he, has to, um, he gets these instructions that he has to imagine uh, an original structure that will enable him to climb over the wall. And the whole story is about how, how the difficulty he faces in imagining something unique, something original. And all he wants is he, just, he, he needs this very physical form of uh, relief and satisfaction in the cold beer. And he can't because he mentally can't imagine something. And that story is kind of, um, it reflects the central theme of the book because I think you must make a leap of faith in order to attain satisfaction which in this man's case is a bottle of fear. But I think we all need to do that in some level, is to almost make that leap of faith in order to get to a, a higher level of understanding.
1: Well, let's also talk about this example and and expound on this a bit. Uh, there is a young boy who has been raised to believe that he is stupid and slow.
4: The story you thought, mentioned is called um, 50 Cents, and it deals with a boy He's had a very harsh and difficult life And um, he hasn't had any friends at all. And he's told at a young age that every friendship has a a cost, a price. And he actually believes, he takes this in a literal sense and believes that the price is 50 cents. And so he thinks he can actually buy friends for 50 cents. Uh, This has been the most popular story in the book in terms of um, people's reactions, I think, because it takes... um, something that we talk about symbolically to say that every every relationship has a cost. And he is a character who takes this literally. And um, I think it's a, a, the reason that I personally find it enduring is because it's based on a true incident in my life. And um, the values from the story are something that I still apply to all my relationships. I think there is a cost to every relationship. You, what you put in is what you get out. And, uh, yeah, that's what the story is about.
1: Who does the book appeal to, and why?
4: Well, you know as an author, you want to believe that it could appeal to everyone, um, and certainly uh, this book IME in particular, just as the title suggests, it's about individuals, it's about all individuals um, i would I would assume that it would appeal to people who are willing to or would like to think outside the box because there are so many boundaries and restrictions. Based on creativity, and um, especially in the writing world, you know there's certain formulas you need to apply to how a story is written. And in IME Me, all those story, most of those restrictions are broken. Most of those guidelines are ignored. So I think it would appeal to someone who enjoys thinking outside of the box.
1: The themes presented in these stories reflect the inherent nature of the individual and the passages that each individual goes through from birth to friendship, love, desire, ambition, spirituality, death, and eventually the afterlife. It seems like uh, this is a unique way. This is unique to you, the way you look at life. And you're trying to open the door for others to see it I, It's the same way you see it.
4: Oh well, yeah, this really this realization really did affect my life. I think it's made me um, a happier person because not not only because I have fewer expectations of others, I have fewer expectations of myself. And I know that sounds negative. What I actually mean by that is that I've learned to understand we're all we're all human, and more importantly, we're all the same. And it really helps to be more forgiving because when someone makes a mistake, you just you realize that it's not them as an individual making the mistake. It's the circumstances in their life. These are the kind of the, the elements, the, uh, the ideas that I want to incorporate into the book, particularly to, to the two-way idea. And I, I personally believe it can be of benefit to people who read it, that it will make us more tolerant of each other and, more importantly, of ourselves.
1: The power of the short story, right? To cause us to think, uh, give us some just situation, and then cause us to think deeper.
4: Absolutely. I mean, you know, the novel has so much to offer. They, they both have their values, but short stories, like you said, I think they're a little deeper just because of how concise and succinct they are.
1: The title of the book, I Am Me, collection of short stories, and we've been listening to Ram Sundaram. Ram, tell us how to get your book.
4: Well, well, it's available on the iUniverse website, on um, Amazon.com, Noble, most online retailers, and uh, pretty much anywhere you can buy a book.
1: Well, thank you, Ram. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse
4: Radio. Thank you so much, Steve.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio.
3: We'll be back right after these messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world, and she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are Offered through LPL Financial. Member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on TogiNet. Hey, moms. Juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazillo, Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the mom to mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. Show and Angie, check out her website azmommaminihats She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful, and she is valuable. Mom of many hats with Angie Mazillo, Friday afternoons at five Eastern, four Central, on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to
0: i Universe Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book. A common man's view, a fresh perspective from middle class America, and the author is Chad Dupuit. And the author is Chad Dupill. And Chad joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Chad. Hello, Steve. Good morning. Well, great to have you with us. Uh, You are a a beacon of light. (laughs) I'll I'll say it that way, and and everyone will understand uh, what this book is about and. And just uh, refreshing, a common man's view of what America is all about from a middle-class American. Let me read what you have written about this fresh perspective from middle-class America. The common men and women of America do not have a nanny to watch their children and have to balance our household budgets all while watching the economy go up and down. Discover what makes the United States great and play your part in reversing its decline by holding old-fashioned common values up. We need to hold up these old-fashioned common values, which is really the the uh, the whole, I guess, the brilliance of America, the intelligence of America, these old-fashioned common values. Well, Chad, you have quite a career. You were in the Marine Corps helicopter pilot. Uh, Tell us about that, and then what happened with your change of thinking about the Marine Corps?
5: Well, Steve, first of all, I want to say uh, thank you, first and foremost, for having me on. Um, I want to thank God uh, that he's given me the opportunities to uh, go after my dream and my dreams, really, Um, and... uh, Really, as far as the Marine Corps is concerned, uh, I love it to this day. You you won't find a better group of people more dedicated than uh, the United States Marines. Um, Obviously, I'm a little biased. But uh, I would say back in, um, I really loved my job. I loved flying. I did uh, two tours in Iraq. Um, Loved the guys. Was uh, doing very well. I got to a point in my career, though, where I looked at life in general and um, said, you know what, I'm at the 10-year mark towards retirement. If I stay in, I'm staying in for 20, um, but at the same time, is there something else? Life's short, I like to say, and you got to play hard, and in my mind, I wanted to go after my dream. I wanted to not, you know, at 20, 25 years in the Marine Corps, I might look back and say, you know, that's all I did. I was at the top of my career. Flew in combat, was uh, briefing missions, uh, raids in and out of Fallujah, Ramadi, and in my mind, it didn't get any better than that as an operator. So I decided to throw caution to the wind. Talked with my wife; she supported me, and um, you know, wanted to go out on my own and just see what I could do. More, more than anything else, um, life's short. Like I said earlier, and you got to play hard. And I just, I love the fact that you know we're afforded the opportunity in America. To go after that dream, and that's that's why I really got out of the Marine Corps. Although I miss it, I miss the the adrenaline, I miss the guys, and and um, but I love what I'm doing now as well.
1: You hear so much negative about America today, and it's uh, it's so disheartening, often uh, frustrating, uh, sometimes even uh, depressing when so many. Downgrade these old-fashioned values. Our founding fathers, the Constitution, even our president says the Constitution is standing in his way. You know, Congress is standing in the way. Uh, of course, all meant to be by the Constitution. Uh, how do you? What was the? What was the drive to uh, create your book with this really strong message?
5: It's funny you ask that. I was. Uh, I believe it was the second tour in Iraq. Um, I was in the middle of a desert, laying on a cot, and I was reading a book by, by the name of Bias. Um, and I thought to myself, you know what? I can do this. I have something to say. Um, and, you know, I, I want to start jotting things down. i write a book. At that point, I got out the Marine Corps in 2006. I started jotting things down, you know, different things would come to my mind, and, you know, what was going on in the country. Um, But I think it had to have been about two years ago that I believe the country, what I saw going on today with the current president, the current administration, but it's not only him and his uh, band of merry radicals, I like to call them, it it was the fact that I saw us as a society going in a direction that, that made me uncomfortable, and I just, you know, it's hard to put a finger on, it just, it was really something that that said hey you know what if we don't do something now and we don't start you know being responsible for ourselves you know what, what future are our kids going to have where are we going to go with this you know are my kids going to have the same opportunities that, that that i believe i have today which are still somewhat difficult and i talked to that in the american dream chapter of my book but um you know, are they really going to, so it's, really, it scared me, it scared me into the fact that, you know what, I'm going to finish this thing, I'm going to, to really give my opinion from somebody, I like to say, that lives in the real world, uh, you know, we, we go through, and, and during the introduction, you talked about it, um, the, you know, we, 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 we in middle-class Americans, I like to say, are the guys that don't have, you know, you you hear from the mainstream, and you hear from from both the left and the right every day on, you know, what we, the challenges we face. Now, in my mind, why not hear from somebody who faces those challenges on a day-to-day basis, who, who, you know, has some experience on the war on terror, which I talk about in the book, who has some experience in running a business, who got caught up in the, Subprime mortgage crisis, um, and, and get a perspective from really the real world where we live today, and that was, I guess, the driving factor. That, and the fact is, it scares the the tar out of me where our country's going today. I, I see this Occupy Wall Street. I see, you know, the irresponsibility not only in, in our so-called leaders in Washington, but across the board. And it's just to a point where I got frustrated. I said, you know, I'm going to finish this thing. I, I stayed up at night. I didn't sleep. I run a couple businesses, but at the same time was something that I felt if nothing else that my children could read and say, hey, this is this is where their dad's coming from, if you will.
1: There's some key messages in your book.'d like to talk about a few of them. Uh, they all seem so bottom line, common sense if you will, but then again, uh, you know, there's not a lot of, of common sense these days running around the country.
5: Yeah, it? uh, <laughs> It's really
1: sad, but uh, let's just talk about honesty. I mean, my goodness, why wouldn't that be the rock upon which a society needs to build?
5: Well, uh, and, and you hit the nail on the head there is you know, part of the, the book itself is, is when, you, when you look at honesty, and I do talk to honesty in my chapter, uh, a word uh, on words, which was essentially a spin off of Saul Alinsky's chapter on, on how these certain words and politics have been warped. But in my mind, what I wanted to do is bring out specific, you know, words, or more so ideas or ideals, if you will, um, on on what's missing today, whether it's in the mainstream uh... politics of today, you know, in Washington, but you know, within our own lives, within itself, and and you know, look, I look, I take honesty in general, and you know, you can go back to whether you know Obama. I, I don't know what's coming out of these guys: mouth Pelosi, uh, Barney Frank. I mean, you name it. What can we really believe anymore? And that's the scary part too: is we don't know what to believe. You know, we're being told. Essentially pushed down from the top, saying, "Hey, this is what this is what to believe. this is the truth, but is it really? I don't know that. Now, what I talk about in the book is we need to fundamentally get back within our own lives and start start telling the truth. You know, um, none of us are perfect. none of us are perfect. Uh, far from it. I'm far from perfect. Um, but at the same time, I think if we challenge each other to to really tell the truth, then, you know, we have to challenge our our leaders, too. We have to challenge ourselves, our kids, uh, society in general, and to tell the truth on on every day. That way we can start holding ourselves accountable, and then we'll start holding those um, that that mean to represent us accountable as well. And that's, in my mind, fundamentally is where we're going to get our country back on the right track.
1: Of course, honesty is just one of the old fashioned common values that uh, you talk about and of course today with people with their hands out instead of trying to be self-reliant the old pioneering kind of ethic you know the uh, the work ethic the uh, there's risk in life you've got to take chances uh, there's no guarantees anywhere i mean we could go on and on it's the old farming kind of uh, mentality and the uh, spirit of America upon which this great nation was built. But you go into some uh, values is very, very important, and we've lost them.
5: I agree. Um, I don't know that we've lost them. You know, I think we're going in that direction. If we don't put a stop to it now, then we very well may. But I believe, uh, Steve, uh, like yourself, uh, we're out there. Uh, I'm out there. I know the guys that I run run around with um, today, whether it be in the business world or my family, or you know. So it, it it is still there, I believe, but it's not. You know, it's being twisted by the, like I said, the mainstream. I mean, you look at the mainstream media, and they're pushing and they're twisting these values, and even the president himself saying that you know we're not a Christian nation, which is couldn't be further from the truth. Um, but those values, I believe, too, and again, I, I'm not going to get on a soapbox here, but what what I am going to say is, personally, you know, in my within that last two years, I think I talked about uh, what compelled me to write this book. It took a little bit of a different spin when I initially thought it was going to, but the... You know, faith in my life and 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 God in my life and what it's done for me and the struggles I've gone through, whether it be in in business and my family and and marriage and you know just life in general. And I believe that that's what has brought me today to where I'm at to what pretty much brought the book. I talk about faith, attitude, and a little bit of perspective, and and faith being the cornerstone, faith in God and Jesus Christ being the cornerstone that makes that attitude and and, and taking a different perspective on things um, that makes it possible to to again be be successful at the end of the day. I, I, I talked a little bit about the Occupy Wall Street crowd, and you know these yahoos walk without doing, you know, and and they they think they're due without having to sacrifice and put in the time. Um, And and I believe in taking that perspective, putting your faith in God, and and knowing that it is the pursuit of happiness, not a guarantee of success. You know, it's the the pursuit that makes it worthwhile, really, at the end of the day.
1: Is the American dream still achievable today?
5: I I guess you have to read the book, but no. I believe it is. I, I really do. Um, how long that's going to be the case with the, you know, we keep having these, these guys pushing down the regulators and there's so much regulation today. And, and, you know, we were talking earlier regarding potentially going into my business and, and what I think of that. And, and I could ask Melissa here. She's my, uh, she runs our administrative department. But the, the two things I hate is taxes and insurance. But, you know, it's a necessary evil. I don't mind paying taxes, but, you know, it's very difficult as a small business to grow but is it achievable um, back in my grandfather's day and that's the american dream chapter my last chapter is you know i staged that question is the american dream achievable today and you know my grandfather he grew up during the great depression eighth grade education lives in an old railroad box car in uh, railroad box car in the middle of upstate maine you know, talk about the challenges to go through, but just the, the perseverance that him and his generation went through to get through that. He ended up uh, very successful, uh, owning businesses. He was a captain for Pan American Airlines, and at the end of the day, what made him successful was, was his faith in God, his faith in himself, and the fact that others believed in him as well. He, he didn't do it on his own. And that's what I found from from his tapes and from talking to my grandfather. He's since passed, but just a phenomenal story. Now, is it still achievable today? I believe it is, with with hard work, perseverance, faith in God, and knowing that there is no guarantee. But you've got to go out there and take those risks. Um, you know, you, you'd have to read the book itself, but... It, it, it is achievable if you want to go after it, but you're not guaranteed. You know what? What is the American dream, too? That's a great question. Right. What is the American dream? Right. It's not money. It's not a big house. It's, not, it's the fact that we're afforded the opportunity to go after it, you know, and not being having the government and the all-knowing and government or anywhere else telling you that you can. You know what? You can. Right. You really can.
1: Well, Chad, we have about a minute left. Uh, We certainly need to be proactive and not take in everything being dictated, as you put it, by Hollywood or our out-of-touch politicians. Give us a a closing thought about your book.
5: You know, I believe it's a common man's view, and I believe that that we're out there, um, but we need to stand up. My little piece to this was, was writing this book when I didn't have time to write it. But we all together... The common men and women of America need to get together, just like we're doing all across America with the Tea Party groups, the 9-12 groups. And, and if nothing else, have your voice heard. We may not agree on everything, but you know what? Let's get back to those fundamental principles like faith in God, like honesty, integrity. Um, and you know what? That will bring us back to where we need to be, and that's the ideology that's being, that, that will continue to make America what it is and it's the greatest country in the world it's the greatest since the inception of our time really i mean uh it really is and we need to continue that and and just understand that we need to be responsible for ourselves and speak the truth
1: you've been listening to author chad dupil he is the uh he's written his book titled a common man's view a fresh perspective from middle class america chad is a retired Marine Corps helicopter pilot. We appreciate your service, Chad, so much. Tell us about your book. You. How how do we get it?
5: You can get it on um, the iUniverse website, uh, publisher Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, or anywhere you can request it. Any uh, anywhere books are sold.
1: Thank you, Chad, for being with us on iUniverse Radio.
5: Hey, God bless you, Stephen. Thank you